I may have stage four lung cancer, but I am one lucky girl. I have these two guys on my team, so I still consider myself very lucky. Advances in lung cancer treatment over the last handful of years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic is an entirely new challenge. I'm Sarah Beatty. And I'm Diane Mulligan. While we're learning more about living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic every day, figuring out how to work, get healthcare, groceries, and safely see family and friends face-to-face, it's particularly challenging. This special series of episodes in the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast is designed to help you navigate this new reality. A couple episodes ago, we talked to Dr. David Carbone, thoracic oncologist at The Ohio State University, and several members of the Speakers Bureau about the importance of getting a second opinion when you're faced with a lung cancer diagnosis. Since then, The COVID-19 pandemic has upended so many lives and has made it much more challenging and difficult to access treatments for lung cancer, especially things like clinical trials where you might have to travel to a different city or even a different state for treatment. Despite the difficulties of living with lung cancer during COVID-19, there may be positive changes for lung cancer patients that come out of the upheaval. Today, we're talking to two amazing thoracic oncologists who work together a thousand miles apart to provide the best care for one of our favorite people, Gina Hollenbeck. Gina's living with ALK positive lung cancer in Memphis, Tennessee, and her experience accessing a second opinion may be the model for how medical care might be delivered post-pandemic as well. So let's jump right into this great conversation with Gina and Dr. Ross Kamage, a thoracic oncologist with the University of Colorado Cancer Center in Denver, and Dr. Raymond Osaro-Gigiabon of the Baptist Cancer Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you all. What a wonderful group to to get together this morning. And Gina, I'm wondering, um, these are your doctors, and, and aren't you lucky to have these gentlemen as your doctors? Maybe you can, Maybe you can give the introduction this morning and explain who we're talking to and why. Great. Um, yeah, I'm honored to have um, these two guys on uh, as a part of my team and um, my my Gina's army um, helping to support me. Um, I, I was first diagnosed in 2015 and I became the member of um, a support group. But before that, I had my oncologist, um, Dr. Raymond Asargi-Yvonne, and I, I said it totally wrong. So the truth is I just call him Dr. O. So I'll just call him that from now on because that's what I usually call him. So anyway, Dr. O is taking care of me and um, doing a great job. And um, I asked um, if I, you know, if it was okay to get a second opinion and Dr. O was great. He was just like, yes, go get as much knowledge as you can find out, you know, everything that you can, and I'm here to help you, um, in any way. And so that was just, um, a, a great thing for me as a healthcare provider, as a nurse, like knowing that a doctor was okay with me, you know, getting as much information from other doctors that it wasn't, you know, like this sense of, oh no, you're only my patient and I say what goes. Instead he's saying, you know, make sure that you understand like all of your options. And um, that was something really great. Well, as a member of the support group and now I'm the president of Alpha Positive, um, that's one of the, the um, things that we allow everyone who is a member of the group to have the opportunity 
opportunity to have a second opinion. And it's even paid for uh, by a very generous um, donor if, if they want the second opinion. And that was just a way that we could make sure that people from all over the country could get the same standard of care that I was getting um, in uh, Memphis from my doctor. And just because my doctor was super, uh, you know, amazing and awesome, it doesn't mean that everyone is getting that same standard of care. And so we just wanted to make sure that everybody had the opportunity to, um, you know, have that second opinion. And so that's what was created through our group. And then I found out about um, Dr. Camage through the group and got my first second opinion through him. Dr. O is awesome to take in any any information and um, together we create the plan, but he really listens to my needs and then, you know, taking in all of this other information from other doctors really helps us to um, make some good decisions um, as far as my care. You bring up something that I think is really interesting. I mean, you're a nurse um, and you, you use the word sort of ask for permission to get a second opinion. And I, I think that that's an interesting way to phrase it because I think a lot of people who, um, you know, wouldn't have your medical background um, would feel very reticent. And we've talked about this with a number of doctors and with a number of patients, very, very um, cautious or careful or, or concerned or upset even about asking for a second opinion. And you were able to go and ask for that second opinion from, from Dr. O. So Dr. Dr. O, talk about what that's like for you as an oncologist when a patient comes and asks for a second opinion. Is that a problem for you? Is that, do you feel like that's a vote of no confidence or what is that like for you, you know, to have somebody say that? Well, my perspective always is to try to see things from the patient's viewpoint. Um, if you think about it conceptually, why do we exist as uh, healthcare providers, healthcare systems? We wouldn't exist if we didn't have patients who needed us, uh, who had a problem for which they seek a solution. And if one remembers that, then, then one begins to understand what one's proper role is. It, it is to give advice and help a patient decide for themselves what is best. With that in mind, um, when a patient comes in, I always tell them the moment the thought of a second opinion gets in your head, do it. The reason for that is if you don't do it, there will always be a nagging question, doubt, concern in the back of your mind. Would things have been different if I had just gone and gotten that second opinion? So the idea of a second opinion is not intimidating to me at all. It's actually, it, it's very useful because when the patient goes and gets the same perspective as you presented to them, they come back with greater confidence in you. And if they go and come back with a different perspective, it gives you the opportunity for dialogue. May even provide the opportunity for, for the doctor to learn something. Uh, so, so at the end of the day, it's all about the patient's comfort, the idea of patient-centeredness. Um, getting a second opinion is a deeply inherent component of it, I think. Dr. Kamich, you and I have talked a couple of times about the importance of a second opinion. What is that conversation like when you get uh, a request for a second opinion and you, you know, you've gotten the scans and you've gotten the, the, all of the medical 
background that you've requested. And what is that um, conversation like for you as colleagues working together? You're 1,053 miles apart, and yet it's like you're in the same building. What's that conversation like for the two of you to work together looking at a, a challenge such as Gina's? Well, I mean, it, it varies. So generally speaking, I think the person who is requesting a second opinion is the patient. And so my initial duty of communication is to the patient. And so at least when, um, when, I, when I write the letter from a remote second opinion, it's addressed to the patient and it says, you had this and you had the other. The last line of those, those opinions is usually, please show this to your treating doctor for their thoughts on the above. Um, to allow the patient to um, begin that dialogue, as, as Ray says, I think an opinion that goes on behind someone's back is rather useless because I think it just increases the stress levels of everybody. But it's also recognizing that the person who is ultimately responsible is the local doctor. And, you know, I'm not issuing orders, which is also kind of very disrespectful. It's just like, here are some things to think about. And this is the reason why I think this. Now, in this particular situation, I, I knew Ray before. So it was very easy with Gina's permission to then say, can I also email this directly to Ray? And then we can start a dialogue that way. So in this particular instance, we had a pre-existing relationship. And, and the, the mutual relationship just sort of evolves organically. Sometimes people just show their letter to their local doctor and everything's fine. Um, sometimes we actually get looped indirectly. I want to get into this question or this discussion about um, putting together the best possible team. Dr. O, we were chatting and you brought up the, um, I think, a really good point about being a thoracic oncologist. And Gina, we've talked about this, the importance of finding a thoracic oncologist, which may be a challenge in the community setting. Dr. O, can you kind of talk about what a, remind us what a thoracic oncologist is and why it's so important to find one or, or what the challenges might be to be able to find a thoracic oncologist if you're in a, in a rural area or a smaller town or a small city um, that, that you, know, you wouldn't have uh, gotten your original diagnosis from a thoracic oncologist. Sure. Um, a, a thoracic oncologist is a doctor of cancer who focuses on cancers of the chest cavity, most of which will be lung cancer. Um, there are different types of uh, thoracic oncologists. There are uh, general thoracic surgeons, thoracic surgical oncologists, there are thoracic medical oncologists. There are other specialists who deal with um, uh, diseases of the chest as well. So pulmonologists, for example, there's a group of pulmonologists called interventional pulmonologists or interventional bronchologists who are sub-subspecialty trained to deal with uh, tumors blocking the airway. Uh, there are also thoracic pathologists, pathologists who focus primarily on those cancers of the, of the chest cavity. Why this is emerging in this fashion is that uh, lung cancer has become uh, significantly more complicated than it once was. And thank God for that. Uh, because what it is, is we have gone from a world in which it was all the same because that's all we knew. And, and the outcomes were essentially the same bad to a world in which we now recognize that lung cancer is not one disease, but many different types of genomic um, abnormalities, which uh, express themselves in somewhat different ways 
and which are sensitive to different types of treatment, which connote different prognosis, um, and, and for which treatment, therefore, needs to be tailored uh, in, in different ways, whether it is surgery or uh, systemic therapy and, and everything in between. The challenge is that this, this rapid advance has happened in fairly short order, uh, probably within the last uh, decade, decade and a half. And our healthcare systems don't transform themselves quite as fast. So, so the doctors, uh, their training and the environment in which they practice have not evolved as rapidly as the reality of the exponentially rising complexity of decision-making in lung cancer has, has evolved. Uh, and therefore, the challenge patients are faced with is that Quite frankly, oftentimes the doctors don't actually know. And, and even more scary, they may not even know what they don't know. And, and so you still have the traditional mindset of I am the doctor, therefore I am the one in control. When in reality, um, it's not so. The patient actually ought to be the one in control. And what we have to do uh, as a, as, as a worldwide care providing community is actually to figure out how to break the, the, the doctor's control over this process to empower patients to be more able to you know, demand the optimal care for themselves. Because ultimately, it's got to be all about the patient. Gina, I see you nodding and, and smiling. Um, I think that here's a, a wonderful situation where you feel in charge of your own healthcare. Is that true? Yeah, I'm so thankful for um, Dr. O because he does allow me and he does empower me. And from the very moment that I met him, he empowered me to um, be able to get educated. And then I became a part of this support group with people from all taking the exact same drugs as I am um, and caregivers. And we have like 2000 members um, now and everybody's information sharing. And we're finding out from that support group that there are certain people that actually study this disease and take care of a lot of patients who have this specific kind of lung cancer. And so then we find that we can get a second opinion because we found some generous donors in the group to make sure that everyone can afford to get a second opinion through um, telephone. So, you know, we're information sharing just through, um, you know, technology. And that's what's so exciting to me that we can see that patients can absolutely, you know, have the opportunity to, to empower themselves to make decisions. And sometimes we'll find that, you know, it, and it's a little bit scary, I think, for people who are not in the healthcare pr profession to say, you know what, wait a minute, uh, I'm not getting an MRI and everyone else is getting MRIs. Like, should I get an MRI? And then they go and at least, um, you know, explore that with their doctor so that they're you know, empowering themselves to make the, the best decisions. So um, it is exciting to me to see Dr. O um, support that. And I'm thankful. I know that a lot of doctors don't support that still. Um, they are, they do have that sense of control and wanting to be, um, you know, in charge. Um, but I do think that, you know, as we move forward and, and admitting that we don't know everything about this disease that, you know, 
information sharing and getting as much knowledge as we can uh, um, can help. I, I can say also that I think that it does at times confuse pe people. So we need a doctor, so someone to be, you know, the lead to say, you know, maybe that doesn't sound so good or that does sound like the right thing. Um, you know, so you do definitely still need a lead. I don't think the patient needs to completely be the person who is put in charge of the decision making. I know for sure when I was first diagnosed with um, lung cancer, if um, if I had seen a, a brochure that says you need biomarker testing, I would have been like, and my doctor said no, I would have been like, okay, whatever he says is right because I don't know anything about this disease. So you know, the truth is, you need you need an oncologist. The the patient doesn't need to completely be in control, but the patient also needs to be able to ask questions and find out as much information as they can about their disease. Dr. Kamich, in the last conversation that we had, you ended our conversation talking about oncologists are optimists. And you talked about the, you know, along comes COVID-19, which has upended so many things for so many people and has upended um, clinical trials. So people, um, and maybe you can help us sort of understand what a clinical trial is and what COVID-19 has done to people who are traveling for clinical trials. But I'd like you to talk us through some of your uh, perceptions of how COVID-19 is upending healthcare in particular for lung cancer patients and how it may not all be bad news in the end. Well, let's be clear. So nobody is celebrating COVID-19 and the tragedies it's causing in people's lives. And yet you, there are still positive things and growth that can come out of that. So one of the things is you've drawn, you've, you've drawn the point that, you know, I'm a thousand miles away and yet Gina and Ray physically might be closer to each other, but we're all communicating through the same system here. So the distance becomes neutralized when you're just conveying information, which you certainly can do in a second opinion. So that, that is a fantastic development. And with COVID-19, the US medical system switched to telemedicine literally in a heartbeat. All the infrastructure was there. What they did was they relaxed the, um, the paying restrictions, um, and even some of the states allowed you to do it across state borders. Now, how much that will continue in the future, uh, we don't know, but it shows the feasibility. However, it also shows the limitations. So I have never been able to examine Gina. Um, I don't even know if she's got one leg or two legs. I mean, we just, you know, there are things you can't do virtually. Yet Ray is the guy who's there, who's hands on, and you need that person. You need that person who's actually going to deliver these these things. So, my there are certain things that you can provide through um, you know telehealth, virtual medicine, remote second opinions, and there are some things you can't. And so sometimes I get somebody who's you know calling me from some other country, asking me if I can be their primary doctor, and the answer is no. You know you need a local person, and I can act as a you know a guide or a sounding board. I wanted to bring one other thing out about remote second opinions because we, we kind of touched on it. Sure, one of the aspects is actual information. You know, things that uh, the local oncologist may not be as up to speed on as, as an expert might be. Now, the other thing, and probably I would say, you know, at least 60% of the remote second opinions I do are not driven by lack of knowledge they're driven by a kind of communication disconnect between the oncologist and the patient. Now, this is clearly not the case with, with Ray and Gina, but sometimes all I'm doing is literally taking the same information they've had 
and presenting it in a in in a different way and what I view my role there is actually almost like a kind of relationship counselor to kind of reassure the trust with the local oncologist and just reassure them that yes they are going on the right path and so there are, there are different aspects um, you know one is knowledge and the other is just you know in a busy oncology clinic just having not had the time maybe to communicate as perfectly as you might want. And Dr. O, you, you alluded to that earlier, that your um, response is, as soon as you have a second opinion in your mind, go get one. You, what, how does that change a relationship um, that you might have with a patient um, when you get confirming information back from a second opinion doctor, or you might get additional information that is a little bit different than what you found? Yeah, so the uh, second opinions are extremely valuable. You know, just picture the patient uh, diagnosed from ostensibly good health to sudden, uh, suddenly a life-threatening illness. Uh, that's, that's an emotionally trying time. Um, along with the fear and the disappointment and all of it that, that comes with a cancer diagnosis is, is you know, doubt. Um, I mean, think about it. One, you, you always regarded yourself as healthy and then suddenly somebody is telling you you've got a life-threatening problem. There's a sense of betrayal, I think, that, that you have, and we, which extends to everything, including, well, how do I know this guy is telling me the correct thing? Um, you know, so, so I think it is extremely valuable to get re, um, some kind of independent corroboration that the course that has been outlined for you is a reasonable, safe, and, uh, uh, and optimal one in the best of times, uh, in the best of cases. Now, obviously, opinions can differ. Um, so it is possible to get a second opinion that is different than what was uh, initially outlined for you. I think that's an opportunity, like I said earlier, for dialogue. Uh, to go back to your doctor and say, well, <clears throat> here's what this other person said. It seems to be different from what you have proposed. Could you reconcile this for me? You know, um, it creates a real opportunity for communication because the process of that reconciliation allows the patient to be able to determine if the doctor um, that they're with is compassionate and respectful enough to really take in that information, digest it, and represent it back to them to explain why the difference exists, or if, quite frankly, they don't care enough to do so. And my recommendation to patients always is, life is hard enough when you're facing a life-threatening illness. It can't be a firefight with your doctor, okay? If the doctor doesn't make you comfortable, oh my goodness, please fire him, find yourself a better one. So, so the idea of a second opinion is, if it is intimidating to your doctor, maybe that's a doctor you really need to be uh, questioning. Um, it, it, even if the doctor disagrees with the opinion that, that you have come back with, he respects you and cares enough. He should take the time to try to explain why in terms that you can understand. 
And if at the end of the day, you still don't quite feel comfortable, then maybe you really should seek care elsewhere. Um, if on the other hand, he reassures you enough to make you feel he does have your best interest at heart, then, then, then it, it becomes easier going forward to be confident that you're in the right hand. You know, one thing that I'm hearing from both you, um, Dr. Owen, and you, Dr. Kamich, is kind of um, an underlying theme of changing how um, lung cancer is treated. You know, we've talked about the ever-increasing complexity of lung cancer, the importance of finding a thoracic oncologist. Dr. O, you've talked about um, using data um, in your uh, institution to um, change how care is delivered. Dr. Kamich, you um, are, are doing clinical trials um, that are changing, in, uh, changing the standard of care, really, um, for what people you know, will, will have access to going forward. I think that that kind of reflects how quickly lung cancer treatment is changing. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, but part of medicine is also, you know, to paraphrase um, a line from Evita. So medicine is the art of the possible. They said politics is the art of the possible. And so, you know, when you do these opinions, particularly when I do them around the world, there are things that you can't access in Scotland or, you know, Bulgaria or wherever. And so you have to say within the tools that you have, how do we make the best use of them? So you have to be constantly flexible rather than just say this is an ideal world you should all have the most expensive thing sometimes that doesn't work in the usa you probably can get most of the things and then it comes down to saying well is it a sensible thing just because you can do it should you do it yeah, i completely agree with that I, I think um obviously we live in a world where we have to make compromises all the time we do have to be pragmatic um, one of the challenges with the rising complexity is actually figuring that what is truly available, uh, what makes sense in this particular instance, and that's where the concept of a team becomes very important. Um, um, lung cancer has certain unique perspectives that, that aspects to it that we, we need to maybe just touch on uh, quickly. So, so, so there, first of all, there's a lot of it. <laughs> you know, um, lung cancer is the oncologic scourge of our age. Uh, if you look worldwide, if you look in the United States, th th there are more people who die of lung cancer than any other uh, cancer. So there's just that much of it. And, and then, you know, the, the other aspect of it is lung cancer is complicated because the thoracic cavity, the, the chest where the, the areas of concern are, uh, it, it is very difficult to access. So, so lung cancer lesions, uh, things that you do on an x-ray that look like they could be cancer, are hard to get at. What that translates into is that it, it takes certain specially trained doctors who have certain hard to acquire skill sets to be able to do the diagnosing, the staging, you know, figuring out how much of a cancer any individual patient has got, and then what the ideal best treatment for this specific patient is. And that takes a team as well. So the problem with lung cancer can be sometimes, um, if I'm a surgeon and you flow into my, my office, 
chances are you're going to see surgery at some point, whether that's maybe what you need or not. If, if I'm a medical oncologist, chances are you're going to see some chemotherapy. And I, out of the goodness of my heart and my best intentions, I somehow find a way to give you the service that I control, which may or may not be what you need. So even at the individual level, there is already the need for multiple opinions. And we call that multidisciplinary decision making, meaning a patient comes in, the surgeon's there, the, the radiologist is there, the pulmonologist is there, the medical oncologist is there, the radiation oncologist is there, the pathologist is there, and they actually all surround the patient, look through the information, and then come up with their best understanding of what's going on and what needs to be done next. That's a structure of care delivery that actually doesn't exist in most places. And, and that's a structure of care delivery that actually gives you a second, third, fourth, fifth opinion concurrently in real time, right up front. And that's one of the major efforts that we really need to bring out into, into the open to help people understand A, has great value, and B, that value actually we frequently don't get because the structure does not exist in the majority of the places where the majority of patients go to get care. As you're talking, I'm, do you remember, um, this is such a silly analogy, but it sounds like you know the Star Trek Next Generation show, you remember when they would have a really thorny problem and you know, five or six of them would sit around and they would talk about it and, and you know, the engineer would talk about this angle of it and the, you know, it, it, just that idea of bringing all of the best minds from the different disciplines, you know, to solve some crazy space problem, you know, in a, in a silly show. That's what sort of comes up in my mind about it. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's one of those things where in a community healthcare system where you try to bring that culture to bear. It's, it's very interesting how resistant doctors can be to that. You know, um, I, I want to be in control. I, I don't want to have to check my ego at the door and be in a room where what I want to do gets sort of debated down and then some other option is deemed to be better. So, so, so again, another example of why patients need to be empowered to ask difficult questions because the doctors ought to be asking those difficult questions of themselves and their colleagues. And I think patients also, considering that they have the greatest to lose, really ought to be comfortable asking those questions as well. So Gina, I think to kind of wrap up this discussion, which has been a wonderful discussion this morning, when you are talking to newly diagnosed patients, what is your best advice so that other people who are facing a lung cancer diagnosis can sit here in this, you know, in the presence of, of people who are as dedicated and um, learned and, and uh, teamwork focused as these oncologists are? How do you put together a team like this? I, w I definitely would suggest to somebody who is, you know, newly diagnosed to get in some type of a support group and find people who are just like you. People who um, maybe ha are the same stage or, you know, whatever, um, have brain metastasis, um, but find people who are just like you because then you can start 
taking notes from one another. You can find out what type of care, you know, people are getting. Uh, I think that uh, Facebook support groups are an amazing way for people to connect from all over the place and information share. And that information sharing is how I feel like I got most of my knowledge. That's where we share clinical trials that are, you know, new clinical trials that are coming out, things like that. And so um, I think COVID-19 kind of, um, and telemedicine kind of brought people into the thing that we were already doing um, as, you know, by connecting. It's kind of like, welcome welcome to our world. Um, this, this is something that works. And my hope is that we can see that in other disease processes and even in uh, clinical trials that we can bring into tele telemedicine so that we can have more accrual through clinical trials and things like that, make sure that we get more patients that are able to participate where they don't have to travel to actually go to a clinical trial site, that they have their at-home doctor that can touch them and make sure they have two legs, like Dr. Cambridge said, and you know, make sure that they're all intact. And then they can have that um, clinical trial person who's doing the actual research, you know, be able to get the data. And um, so that, that's my hope from um, uh, COVID-19, the silver lining that I see. I definitely see a lot of positive things that, you know, other people are being brought into things that we're already getting the opportunity to experience and in my lung cancer world anyway. So one of the things I think sometimes people worry about in terms of second opinions is, you know, that there's the concern about upsetting their primary doctor, but there's also the worry that there's some secret deep state of doctors such that I will never disagree with Ray. And, and I have to tell you that, you know, as physicians, our duty is to the patient. And whilst 99% um, of the time it's about, you know, increasing knowledge and uh, improving communication, just occasionally I have said, you should not walk but run away from this doctor because their motivation is wrong. So I have no loyalty to Ray, who I like very much. But if he's wrong, my duty is to Gina. He's not wrong, so that's fine. Here, here, absolutely, absolutely. And that happens also all the time where you get a shocker and, uh, and, and then it, it, you have to find some way to let the patient know, indeed, this is absolutely off the charts, unbelievable wrong and, and give them, and sometimes you have to be blunt with the patient and tell them, look, I wouldn't do this. I may have stage four lung cancer, but I am one lucky girl. I have these two guys on my team, so I still consider myself very lucky. Isn't that amazing? You can hear in Gina's voice how much she appreciates and feels empowered to manage her own lung cancer journey with the support of these two amazing thoracic oncologists working together more than a thousand miles apart. Oh, for sure. And that telemedicine or remote second opinion model may be one positive change to the healthcare system in the wake of COVID-19, with lung cancer patients and their doctors leading the way. Hey, would you like more Hope With Answers? Visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and a whole lot more. I'm Sarah Beatty. And I'm Diane Mulligan. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, you know, please consider making a donation to help LCFA fund cutting-edge research that will lead to new treatments and protocols with the goal of greater survival rates for lung cancer patients everywhere. 
Join us next time. Lung cancer. It's a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience.